to episode 373 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fans' usually weekly podcast of many topics. I am Zach Wilkerson, and I'm going to be your host today. Uh, and we are here today to talk about Octopath Traveler 2, which is uh, a recent game and a little more recent than most of the games that we typically play on this podcast. Uh, but before we get to that and before I introduce the panel, I want to say a couple things about the show um, and sort of the show going forward. So those of you who follow Solosi on Twitter or maybe are in our Discord may already be aware of this, but uh, Solosi needs to step away from the podcast for a minute. Um, he's had some health issues uh, that have been happening, um, and he's got to really uh, take care of himself for a little while. He's okay. He's, he's all good. Uh, but it's something that we need to uh, keep an eye on, or he needs to keep an eye on. So in the meantime, I'm going to be sort of caretaking the podcast. Uh, but I, as most of you probably know, and those of you who are on the podcast know this as well, Solosi is a machine, <laughs> and I cannot possibly keep up with his pace. Uh, so we're going to be moving the show to a bi-weekly format for the moment. Uh, so that means that every two weeks, you're going to see a, a new episode of Retro Encounter. Uh, not too, too much else is going to change. Uh, we will still have uh, game journals and off-topics. Uh, and that, that's pretty much going to be the same. And that'll be true at least through midsummer. Uh, we're not sure when Slosi is going to be ready to come back, but uh, I, I know that he will because <laughs> he loves podcasting. And uh, I will do my best to, to take care of the podcast in the meantime. There are big shoes to fill. I can't. I'm not Slosi, but I will do my best. So um, that's that's the show going forward. I'll say a little bit more about the episodes that are coming up uh, towards the end, but I wanted to make sure everybody was aware of that. So uh, before we start talking about Octopath Traveler 2. Uh, let me introduce our panel, starting with music expert extraordinaire, Pat Gann. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. And returning to Retro Encounter and the deputy editor currently of Nintendo Life, Alana Higgs. That sounds really formal. <laughs> and I promise it's not as like stuffy as it sounds, but... <laughs> <laughs> the deputy editor. Yeah, like you started there yeah. like a year ago, and you're already like you know the second editor in charge. That's awesome. You you, you can <laughs> own that um, as being awesome because you're awesome. So which obviously, I think so. I, I, I agree. You are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> We're already starting with the platitudes. Let's play Octopath Two, please. Fair enough. Uh, so yeah, Octopath Traveler Two. Uh, I reviewed it for the site uh, back when it came out uh, a couple months ago. And uh, this was actually Solosi's plan before he had to step away, was for us to do a spoiler cast on Octopath Traveler 2 because it had to replace uh, another episode. So before we really get into it um, and talk a little bit about Octopath Traveler 2, I want to kind of take a step back for a second um, and talk a little bit about uh, Octopath Traveler in general, our experiences with it, our opinions about them, or about, I guess, the one game we've played. If you've played the mobile game, you can talk about that too. Um, and just sort of uh, how we feel about Octopath Traveler, sort of leading up to Octopath Traveler 2. And we will start with you, Alana. Uh, so, yeah, Octopath 1. Weirdly, Octopath 1 is the first Team Asano game I beat. Um, I've tried Bravely before, and I didn't like it. But the aesthetic of Octopath 1 was kind of what won me over, and I was like, oh no, I'm there. Like, the first time I saw it, I remember that Nintendo Direct trailer, I think it was, and I was like, oh... Oh yeah, I'm. I've got to get this day one, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it, and I kind of felt like there was a lot of hype behind it. Um, and then afterwards, there was a lot of criticism around it. There was like a real fifty-fifty split, and it felt like there was a bit of a split narrative at the time. Like lots of people who enjoyed it enjoyed it for what it was, 
and then a lot of people didn't because it wasn't what they expected it to be. Um, there was like a interview that went around a few months before the game came out where um, I think something was either misinterpreted, um, but Asano said that he was inspired by the classics and mentioned Final Fantasy VI in that breath. And then everyone was like, oh, it's the next Final Fantasy VI! And it's like, oh no, you, you, you can't believe that. And lo and behold, it's not. And in fact, like, I'm sure we'll talk about some inspirations later, but like, at the time, I was like, this is very saga-esque. I was like, this is very cool, but like, a little more streamlined and a little bit easier to dive into. But yeah, I really loved the original Octopath Traveler. Um, I didn't do everything in it. And part of the reason I didn't do everything in it, I did all eight stories and I did most of the side quests and I got all of the sub jobs, was because doing the secret boss just didn't sound very fun. And the unlock requirements for it did not feel fun. Yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> I redeemed myself. Um, and th there was the side quest part of it that sounded really boring, like figure it out yourself kind of thing. But yeah, um, so I didn't. But then when Octopath 2 was announced, I was like, and it, it somehow like, it just exceeded everything. Like it looked better immediately. And like, even though five years have been passed and we've had like a couple of HD 2D games and we've seen a couple more on the horizon, you know, we're like, it was just quite surprising to me that they would return to Octopath 2. And again, I think people expected more change from it. And I think it is drastically different in some ways, but yeah, Octopath 2, like, kind of blows one out of the water, and that's saying something, considering I love one, so... Yeah, I guess I'm in for every Octopath game ever, although I haven't played Champions of the Continent, but that's because it's on my phone and I hate playing stuff <laughs> on my phone, so... Uh, Pat, what are you... What's your experience with Octopath? Oh, goodness. Um, well, first, uh, since Alana just mentioned it, uh, I have not touched Champions of the Continent. Not because I don't uh have a problem it's it's not a oh mobile games are unfun i'm actually about to hit a thousand days logged in on romancing saga reuniverse <laughs> so i'm happy to play mobile games uh i just can't afford nice expensive phones i always get like cheapo phones and uh even though i could install every game every mobile game I've wanted to, up to and including Shino Alice. Uh, for whatever reason, Champions of the Continent must have been too resource intensive because uh, my phone blocks me from downloading it um, because uh, my phone can't handle it. When I got that notification for Near Reincarnation, that made sense. It was like full 3D and all that stuff, but I was like, is, is HD 2D really that intense? Maybe it is. Maybe I don't understand how things work, but I'm uh, salty as all can be that I can't play this game right now. Um, so, bummed about that. Um, I also never played any of the prior Team Asano games. Uh, I've always wanted to, but um, I don't think visually they gripped me in the same way that... I mean, they've created a freaking subgenre based on visuals. Um, and HD2D is where it's at. I love it. Um, so yeah, uh, I've played the first Octopath Traveler a lot. Um, I did all things quest-related, including the uh, Galdera fight um, back when the game first came out, and I actually beat Galdera about 12 hours ago um, uh, on the Steam version of the game, where I am uh, like a madman attempting to get all of the achievements. Um, 
So I love the first game. Uh, I think it's great. I also think it's basically a more polished saga game in terms of a lot of its mechanics. Um, which, you know, I love the Saga series. If anyone, you know, listens, especially on Rhythm Encounter, they know I'm obsessed with that franchise, and Octopath is like that. Crying in Jono. Better. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. It's, uh, me and Jono have our Saga rivalry forever. Um, yeah, but Octopath is basically that, but without, like, any of the things that people get frustrated about it in like that's my take in my opinion um but yeah i love that game so much uh and so when we get to the second one i do agree with lana the second one is just superior in pretty much every way so yeah Cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, I uh, agree with both of you. Uh, before I talk about those things, I do think the Octopath Traveler 2 is the better game on basically every front. I actually can't think of anything I prefer about Octopath 1 now that I think about it more. So uh, my history with Octopath is very similar. I mean, I, uh, I I have actually never beaten a Team Asano game, which seems like the sort of thing that I would like, because I love uh, job systems and difficult combat scenarios, and it's like totally my thing. Um, I've got Bravely Default 2 sitting on my shelf. I've played a little bit of the Bravely Default 1. Um, and so I, I very much want to play uh, more Bravely, but I, I haven't. But uh, interestingly, uh, Octopath Traveler 1 um, is an important game for me to, for lots of reasons. Uh, I played it right around when it came out uh, back in 2018. And I wrote a review for it uh, when I applied to work for RPG Fan. And our reviews manager at the time, Alana Higgs, uh, <laughs> looked at it and decided that I was worth being interviewed. And a lot of things have happened in my life since then, including work, <laughs> working here uh, as a result of that. So uh, I, I loved the first Octopath. I was higher on it than most. I know a lot of people had trouble with the uh, individual stories and didn't like that or that the writing wasn't as effective. But I thought that it was just so fun. To, it, was, it was like an RPG fan playground. And I do think that uh, Octopath 2, which I reviewed for the site, is uh, a more perfect distillation of that. The writing is better. The music is better. The gameplay is a little tiny bit better. Even the music is better, um, which is amazing uh, because the music in the first one is incredible. So I, I love Octopath uh, and I'm excited to be able to chat with it. Uh, I chat about it with you too. Me too. Me three. <laughs> So um, uh, just to give people a little bit of a background in terms of uh, if you don't know what the premise of an Octopath game is, uh, first of all, you know, probably you shouldn't listen to this episode, <laughs> uh, but I know some people like to listen to these even if they haven't uh, played the game. So uh, Octopath Traveler 2, similar to Octopath Traveler 1, uh, the, the uh, premise is that you follow uh, eight different characters and they have eight different individual stories. And you pick a starting protagonist, so let's say, uh, you know, in this case, I chose Hikari, um, or whoever you choose, who is a warrior, and uh, you follow their their story through chapter one, and then after you're done with that, you basically have the whole world, or most of the world, at your disposal. And you walk around, and you go try to meet the other seven characters who could have potentially been your protagonist, and if you choose to, you can flash back to their chapter one, find out, like, sort of how they came to be where they are. And then you go through and play the rest of the game. Um, and you'll have these different chapters, either three to five chapters in this game, where you are 
Uh, you go to a town, you start their quest, and then like you have their chapter three, for example, where you will play through their story. And it's a very individualized storytelling technique where they are really telling stories that are um, specific to that character and about that character. And in this game, uh, once you finish everybody's chapters, you get uh, one final chapter where everything sort of comes together. You see how some of the threads in the other game or all the other stories came together to make this sort of one whole. And yeah, it was developed by Timasano, who also work also works in the Bravely series. Um, that has some combat mechanics that are similar to the Bravely series, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, but that's where we are. So uh, let's talk a little bit just about uh, initial impressions of Octopath 2. Uh, when you first booted it up, you first started playing it, um, and you were getting a feel for the game. Uh, wh wh how did you guys feel about it? What did you guys like? Um, what were your impressions of sort of the opening hours? And I'm really curious, who was your starting protagonist? I'll go first. Um, I went into the game having like read or looked up, like I chose to go in as blind as possible, not knowing much about it, um, so that I could be pleasantly surprised in case there were cool things. And I know that for a lot of people, like day-night cycle is like, meh, whatever. Um, what they did with the day-night cycle, um, specifically everyone's path action, their ability to interact with townspeople in different ways and do different things. The fact that people got different town or path actions between day and night, and also, NPCs will be located at different places in day and night, and sometimes NPCs can only be found at one or the other. And then they also have, like, hit a button to switch time at any moment. Um, so you can, you know, flip through day-night cycle instantly, no problem. Um, that was probably my big first impression. I was like, okay, they've added a whole thing, and it's awesome. That's awesome. And then, yeah, I mean, because for me, then, like, I, I liked the idea of being able to see the different day and night. But when I first started playing it, and again, sometimes I have to, like, sort of couch my thinking in the fact that I was trying to play this in, like, eight days, <laughs> uh, which is not very much time. Uh, but I was like, OK, so, like, you have different path actions in day and night and you have different NPCs in day and night. And oh, my gosh, I already spent so much people so much time trying to steal from everyone and trying to do all these different things in the day and the night. And it just felt like it was like so much. Uh, and, and in my, I, interestingly, in my initial hours that frustrated me, but by the end I was like, Oh, it's just like more stuff to do, which is awesome. So yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. There's a lot of like puzzle solving elements by adding day and night, like, because there's like variants on the same action, like you can steal, uh, but also like, I think it's, is it at night that Oswald can mug? So, like, if you win a fight, you get to steal all their stuff. Um, and so, like, some people, if they're only out at one time or the other, you're like, oh, I need to switch to this other character. And it's uh, all the more reason to keep all eight party members relatively well-leveled. So, yeah, I really like Day-Night. I thought that was, like, right from the start. I was like, that's great. Um, they added something in terms of um, battle mechanics. Um, can't remember the name of it though, but it's like a whole different gauge than the boost system that allows you to use La like, latent power. Latent power, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the latent power thing was really great, um, especially because it adds even more uniqueness. Like the fact that everyone can equip the other jobs as secondaries uh, was cool, but then you know it's like what makes you really unique? Um, 
you know, in the first game, it was like maybe get a skill or a like a con like uh like only the true hunter, uh, Ochet, or in the first game, Hanit, could actually you know capture and summon beasts. Um, but now, like on top of that, it's like oh, you have the entire latent gauge, um, and you also have the EX skills. I think everyone has two EX skills that are unique to them. So they've made each character more valuable that way from a combat perspective, which I loved. Um, and then you asked who we chose first. I chose Casty. Um, I love that she choice. Seemed, <laughs> she just seems so subdued. Yeah. And uh, the payoff was was huge. Oh. Um, I didn't like Apothecary as a class in the first game, uh, and I came to love it a great deal Ooh. through the it's uh i think it's the best class in this game and i actually think it's the best class in the first game too but i understand so casty that's an interesting choice i like that a lot uh so alana what about you not as unique as that i'm like jealous because casty was one of the i was really struggling with my first pick um but yeah i i played the demo and unfortunately i can't really go in blind to these kind of things but i'm also not really the kind of person who'd want to like i wanted to know a lot of things i was like right who are the characters what are their jobs what's the motivation things like that and like it's funny because like i knew i'd love it i knew i would sit down and play the demo and go yeah i want more of this but like i was surprised at how i just sat down and it was like warm cozy rpg octopath time even though i picked throne a which is nothing it's the complete opposite of cozy right like you know like someone dies in her <laughs> yeah. opening Thro chapter throne's got to have the darkest story and that's throne saying something <laughs> throne's name is literally thorn or throne and then you're like oh okay so uh there's this weird like cult based around an immortal blah 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 blah, blah. and i'm like okay this is uh this is edgy um like and that's kind of impressive to like outclass therian as edgy but yeah um but yeah like immediately i was just like completely drawn in and i think interestingly the day and night cycle is part of it i think you can really really see how much hd2d's evolved and i didn't even think about this too much when i played live alive last year or i didn't think about it with live alive last year um or when I saw like Triangle Strategy, um, I was like, oh, this looks like a nice step up in it, like HD 2D. But then with Octopath 2, I'm like, oh my God, like the lighting is so much better. You can see like the dust and the pollen off of plants and you can see like the water rippling. And actually getting in a boat for the first time was maybe my favorite thing. So good. There's, like, a it's so cute. I'm just like, how do you how do you keep that little boat in your pocket? And then just when the minute you touch the water surface, you're like sitting in this boat, like, yeah, I'm gonna pedal my paddle my way through. And I'm like, <laughs> this is cute. It doesn't make any sense, but it's fine. But yeah, like just like that sense of like it was like a big step up out of the gate. And I was like, how? And because I picked Throne A, I got the inventor job in the demo. So it was like already like a huge reward. Like because all the sub jobs in one are all like end game, really. Um, you're not really going to get them before you hit the end of the game, unless you're like very powerful. Um, and so the fact that you can get them pretty much from the get go, or at least from chapter one, is like a really nice reward. So that was a bit surprising. Um, but yeah, like immediately it was just like laying it all out on the table. Like, you know, you loved this game before. Here it all is. And I was like, oh, this is like a big RPG playground to me. Yeah, I I think that one of the um, underrated adjustments from the first game um, is the adjustments they've made to the job system. 
um, on, a, on a number of different levels. And they're like pretty subtle. <laughs> uh, so like, yeah. I, I, I think that because um, I, I was playing this before and uh, I was talking to you about exactly who to pick to get the inventor job first. And the inventor job is so good for clearing out mobs. <laughs> um, mm. Like it was like on my best physical attacker the entire game. Um, but it's also like so unique in the way that you get the job. And I really like that. Um, that that and arms master like the skills are unlocked in a different way you get them in a different way and i think that one of the things that one of the lasting impressions i have in this game is that it stuck with the formula but it was willing to like add some new things here and there that didn't make it feel so distinct from the first game that it didn't belong but like it did a, just enough like with the inventor class where like you're unlocking new skills by bringing items to the inventor um, and just how versatile the inventor class is. Uh, we'll talk about Goldera later, but he was the inventor for one thing and one thing only in the late game. Um, and uh, yeah, I really like the way that the job system here is set up. And so I guess before we talk about the story, um, you know, it's, I guess we talk about some of the jobs a little bit um, and the job system in general. Um, what were you guys' thoughts on the uh, job system? Um, I mean, it was good still. Like, I, I think it was very good. And I think, again, like those bonus jobs, um, they're all really, really interesting and fantastic. Even if, like, I still struggle to, in a way, to, like, justify using Conjurer in any kind of build, even if it is maybe the coolest design, because it is literally like a, um, it looks like one of those Japanese demons um, with, like, the little headdress and things like that. Um, but, and which made sense because you get it in Ku, right? So you get it in the tower. Um, and I love the way that you get them all, um, but it's really interesting that they all feel similar to their previous versions, but just with a couple of changes in skills, like uh, thrown a thief, for example, has like HP steel now, but like obviously Therian had a SP steel. Significantly like, that... less broken, unfortunately. Yeah, th <laughs> thief is, so like, yeah, it, it makes you work a little harder, but like in other things, like, I think apothecary is still really good in this game and it is one of the best jobs in the game but like Alfin was pretty busted in one and it's a little bit more toned down because you have to like the most busted part of Alfin is now part of like Cassie's latent skill so as long as you can keep that up then that's fine and it's the same for scholar as well like scholar is maybe the job that got nerfed the most um oh, yeah. it is scholar is the worst job <laughs> it's not even close it's, it's crazy <laughs> but like i think they're all really interesting changes because it means like you can't just go in and play it like octopath one it's like mm -hmm. you know you, it's not like playing another like, sequel and being like oh i'll do a similar strategy here we go um you can't do that because some of the sub jobs from the first game aren't there and all of the jobs are slightly different in some way or another so like i don't think cleric's as good in this one as well um Although, actually, the latent power, again, that Temenos has is uh, extremely good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it saved me many skill. times. And the divine skill as well. No. Um, the divine skill is the only way I could even have a chance of being a super boss in this game. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's fantastic. I think what I really like about it is just how simple it is. And I think, like, so many, like, older RPGs, like, I was certainly intimidated by a lot of older RPGs with job systems because I was like, oh, there's so much shuffling and there's so much, like, juggling. But actually, it's so simple, and it's so like easy, and it it encourages experimentation to a degree. Um, and I think most job combinations will work. Like I think you could easily beat the main game and the final boss at the end of the final chapter using any combination of, unless you're like playing with like the same three jobs on like people. Um, 
and actually that's like one more subtle change isn't it like you can unlock extra job licenses so all the main eight jobs you can equip on two different people so you could have like three thieves if you wanted you could have throne as her thief and then you know you can have uh ochet and hikari as thieves as well if you have both of those licenses so there's there's three licenses total you can make a whole party with the same job is that what you did on galdera pat no, no, but I was just going to say, you can get up to three licenses. How do you each... get the third license? Well, you get one initially just for like meeting the person, and then there's mm-hmm. uh, there's two more things for each oh, yeah. job. Yeah, yeah. Thank that you. you. Yeah. Sorry. So you <laughs> right, and so you can't get that with the... Uh, the okay. additional jobs, yeah. The right, jobs. it's only for the, the ones that you sub from the other main eight. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I did. I did think. So it's interesting what you said about scholar. I, I like having access to, um, analyze. <laughs> so I think at some point I did have a a, a party of four people with scholar <laughs> attached. I like knowing weaknesses. <laughs> I mean, I totally understand that. <laughs> I like knowing them like right away. I'm weird about that. So was Scholar your favorite job then? Uh, it was in the first game. Yeah, first uh, game I agree. Yeah, absolutely. No. Um, I'm being honest, among the main eight, um, I think... Oh, that's tough. I think I'd probably give it to Warrior this time around. Mm. I think I would too. Uh, <laughs> Warrior, Warrior was extremely effective. Um and it's a good sub job to have. Now, in both games, the uh, the learned skill from your job, if you want to break the damage cap and go five digits instead of four digits with your damage, <laughs> that in in both games you had to uh, spend some time with Warrior and throw a lot of job points in. So all of my characters did that um, just in case I needed to break damage cap with them. Mm-hmm. Which by the end of the game, you kind of need to. That's true. Yep. <laughs> um, I wanted to say something about the lore attached to job system. You know, having just recently played the first game again, you know, in both the regular sub jobs and the four additional, it was all you go to these shrines and you speak to like the like the god associated, like the divine being associated with these jobs. That doesn't happen like at all in the second game. In the second game, it's like they're like these guild masters for the the main eight where you get licenses and then for the other four they're like these weird scenarios and what's really interesting is you know the lore in the first game is that there are these 12 divine beings and then there was a dark 13th one but in octopath 2 uh they only talk about the eight and then like the dark ninth v-day so it's like where those other four go um like, is that just like a, we're changing the narrative for the convenience of our uh, gameplay change? Because the other four jobs aren't like based on some sort of divinity. They're just like fun things that you can find. I don't know. I didn't think about it until I went back and played the first game. Then That's I was interesting. Like, like, did they just change like their mythos and divinity? Or is it like maybe this... Like, why does this realm story have a certain story around how the darkness works? Even though they they share the name of the eight main ones, like Alifan and 
Elfric and um, you know, whatever all their names are. <laughs> Don't ask me. Yeah. I can't remember well, that. Biff Frelgen and <laughs> Selick Tig or something. Oh, um, Seal yeah. Seal Teague, yeah. They, they're cool names, and I know that they're yeah, they're great. Um, and you get that play at the beginning with Temenosis, chapter one, where, like, they're teaching the kids in, like, their equivalent of Sunday school about, like, the main story of their faith. Um, but, like, that story as it exists in Octopath 1 uh, has four more deities, and I don't think they refer to the darkness as Vidya. I think they speak directly to, about Galdera. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't tell you, and we'll talk about this when we get later in the podcast, uh, how the lore of these two games or how they're connected. We know they are uh, for reasons that we'll discuss a little bit more directly later, but yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess since we're talking about lore, now is a good time to start talking about the story, which for me, um, I, I think that the story in this game across basically all eight of the characters is much stronger. And I think that it it's still, because Octopath 1 clearly was like, the idea was let's take this type of character let's take this type of story and like let's tell it and let's not necessarily worry about it being like good <laughs> let's let's just tell a story that is full of like the tropes of the genre whereas here i feel like they certainly are still working within tropes of the genre but i think that they have done a much better job of expanding what each one means and the writing is better and even within like the side quests and even like when you're investigating people <laughs> and finding out what their backstory is, there is just a, a, an increase in quality and maybe it's down to localization. I don't know. Uh, an increase of quality across the board. So I guess I want to talk a little bit about the story, sort of our initial our overall impressions of the writing and the stories. But also we can talk a little bit about uh, maybe our favorite character stories. Uh, if we talk about every single one of them, we will be here all night. <laughs> and uh, so I don't want to do that. But um, Alana, uh, sort of what, what what are your thoughts on the storytelling in general? But also let's talk a little bit about your favorite story. Um, Yeah, Um, but the writing is, yeah, I completely agree with you, Zach. It's way better here. And I think the reason it's better is I think it just knows more what it wants to do and it understands how to work with the limitations it sets itself. I think many people realized after Octopath 2, I don't think that they're ever going to make like an overall story where every single character appears in every single scenario at some point or another, but they do like small things to improve it. So like you can't miss any travel banter anymore and you can't, and like it's always relevant. You can just go into the menu and they're all there and you can listen to them. So it makes everything feel a bit more like obvious, a bit more like involved or interwoven in small ways. And there are even like small dialogue um, pieces in battle. But I think generally the breadcrumbs are obvi also way more obvious. Um, interestingly, like with um, Cyrus and Octopath 1, with the that was where the Goldera storyline dropped in. And that was really the only one, apart from Ophelia's, I think, that was like a small like hint of um, Goldera there, from what I remember. Um, but with this one, every single character has a tiny, tiny little thread. Well, not even tiny. Some of them are really big. Like, you know, Temenos immediately from the gate is like, you're like, like role-playing the beginning, which is like V-Day being killed. 
um even if it's a puppet show but you don't realize that until afterwards um but then you've got like um you've got hikari where hikari is like fighting and then all of a sudden you see this like shadow come out of him and you're like oh my god he's like got this really dark power what is that what's behind that kind of thing um and even like some of the ones that are like less kind of dramatic i would say is a better way of putting it um but like my favorite character who wasn't my starting character he was the second last character i got and i was toying with starting with him as well um my favorite character was Porticio. um and i loved i loved tressa in one like i loved her character and i loved her story and so it made me really sad that people like aside from her being like probably the best character in the game like people just kind of like oh she's kind of just an annoying 18 year old um i was like no um Particio is obviously the complete opposite like he's definitely a merchant who wants to perfect his craft but he's still got that like degree of positivity but he's like someone who grew up in poverty and as a result of that he doesn't want anyone else to suffer that same fate so he takes it upon himself to you know go and well in his chapter one he literally like marches up to the person um who owns the land of Orzras, which is the town he's from and he like basically beats the crap out of him he's like no we're not doing this like you can't take money from us um and so he's willing to do anything he can to like make that spread that like make sure that like money is accessible for everybody which it's really good. It's an extremely naive view of like how capitalism works, but you know what? I'll take it. You know, it, it kind side. of convinced me maybe for a second. <laughs> I was like, yeah, do you know what? You, you're so charming with your yeehaws and your like <laughs> everything. Like, I'll just buy into it. Um, but like, yeah, I, I think Patricia was just such like a breath of fresh air because I think like in general, Octopath 2's cast is a little bit... It, darker for lack of a better term but there's definitely more of a maturity amongst them like i you know cyrus is a bit of a flirt and an idiot in one but then you've got like oswald who is like totally like gruff and like revenge blah blah things like that um but like agnia ochette and potitio are really the only three who they have some really serious moments as well throughout um but they're generally like the mood they're, they're the mood uplifters but Potitio's story takes him around the world and it's very much like he discovers the steam engine and he comes up with this great idea that he's going to like save the world with the steam engine, which like, you know what, in hindsight, like, yeah, no, again, like it, it's something that really happened um, in the real world, but also you can attribute a lot of things to like negativity to like the industrialization of the world and things like that. And actually, um, what's it called the world celestia celestia is much more modernized than mm -hmm. the previous continent of octopath one um but yeah and then chapter three comes along and potitio somehow manages to convince this ultra wealthy person to give him like loads of money <laughs> and was it, like two billion leaves or something is that right it's 80, 80 billion it's 80 billion yeah it's a lot of money. Um, <laughs> I, I love like, that you get to see that in your menu if you open it up. That you oh, have it's so good. that. Oh, yeah, you leaves. have it for that moment. Yeah, <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. When you like pull the letter out in front of Rock, um, yeah, who I guess I sort of skipped over. Um, but yeah, like you find out pretty early on that like um, the mentor that you grew up with, like your father, is the merchant that you grew up with, obviously. But then you had Rock, brilliant, who's this like 
extremely great like merchant who decided to leave Oz Rush towards the end of Partitio's chapter one because he was like, oh, you don't realize what you can do with like, you know, there's not money's not here basically. You can do better than this. And he wanted Partitio to come with him, and he didn't. And then in chapter two, he discovers, guess what? You know, Brock is the one behind wants the steam engine for himself and is the one who's like no you need 80 billion leaves or however many you need to buy it um so then eventually rock has this like super steam punk steam-esque island <laughs> that he lives on and does all his like evil capitalism like patricio is good capitalism and rock is evil capitalism um but yeah you go there and you beat up a steam train <laughs> with with the 80 billion leaves that you try and buy the steam engine off of rock for and then then rock realizes the error of his ways and goes back to it and so i like hashed my way through patricia's story a little bit but like i think what i really love about it is it is like a good degree of a healthy degree of idealism as well because there are moments where patricia is like oh you know what like there are things that money can't buy or like it's not always down to like you know don't pull your bootstraps up it's you know you've got to put in the work but also like you understand he understands that like people suffering mm -hmm. and people he's like a really good-hearted person and you see that throughout the game like even though throne a is like really a pretty bad person in some ways and you know oswald does some pretty terrible things like he has some really good moments of understanding with them um but like really he's just like a real delight like i think everyone bought into it when he was just like yeah i'm gonna punch the landowner and then <laughs> it just like carried on from there really um and you don't really see characters like him in rpgs i think um just this like big old bright force of positivity but in a way that i think is really healthy and i really like because he like sees the benefits and the downsides of everything mm -hmm. um but always see he always tries to see the good in people as well i think and that's why you know him and rock like eventually go into business that's how his story ends and he's like and i read this before coming on um there's only two characters who don't kill anyone in this story one of them is agnia which of course <laughs> and the other one is potitio um because again it to makes total sense like behind his philosophy and everything like that like potitio never looks down on anyone like even though he's like this very smart very obviously you know he's got this gift to like basically just like flip his coin out and be like oh hey chickadee you want to buy this thing off me kind of thing <laughs> like i do i just love potitio so much like he was i was like i remember seeing his design and being like why like this doesn't make sense <laughs> and i was like oh no no I, I i'm into this it's great yeah um and one thing to end on with potitio is that potitio's name is da -da -da -da. Let me get this up. So the one thing that made me realize that I loved him even more was like, Potio is a Latin word that means to divide or to part with things. So like Potitio's whole thing is like, he wants to share his like everything with the world. And that's, you know, Rock was going to use the steam engine for himself, but Potitio wants to use it for the greater good. And actually, obviously he ends up building the steam train that can connect the rest of the continent with each other to make travel easier and stuff. So Again, like you can look at it and go that it's extremely naive, especially when you compare it to like other stories. But I think it's just like a really fun, a really fun, nice story that just ties in really well to his ethos. And also, again, like I think it ties in really well to like the whole, the whole eight party members. Mm -hmm. Like he fits in really well, even though he's like maybe a bit of a bit of a standout. But yeah, I, I do love Potty Show and I was pleasantly surprised 
even if his boss was like the hardest one like easily but jeez yeah it's interesting because i feel like uh this game in general um has a uh a sort of anti-capitalist bent you see that in a variety of stories and a lot of the side uh-huh. stories and people were being taken advantage of in all these different situations i mean you could argue that throne's to some degree is like that too um there are elements of that in agnia's story as well and so i but i do think that uh, particio's story in a lot of ways might be the like, most perfect thematic encapsulation of what this game is going for which is more than i can ever say for the first game i don't think the first game really had like a thematic through line Whereas here, I definitely think this game has a thematic through line of people in power taking advantage of people via elements of capitalism, honestly. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think that um, even though yeah, we'll talk about who the quote unquote main character is later, I do think that Particio holds the thematic elements of this game together in a way that um, maybe some of the other characters don't. Um, and I, I think that he's delightful and I love his theme <laughs> which is so ridiculous <laughs> um, I'm like I'm watching like TV from 1992 again I love right? it he's, he's definitely in like he's definitely going to be appear in like an episode of Monk or something like, it's like the <laughs> first thing I can think of like, <laughs> that is the truth yeah he's a great character light side versus dark side capitalism is the whole thing there um, he's and yeah, there is a lot of naivete to the story. I, I always think about how in chapter one, he punches the landowner just because he feels like it's not fair. And then like the MacGuffin that they pull out and you find out is, oh, we actually rewrote the terms of the contract afterwards, which is just completely right? illegal. But they're like, it's it's essentially the Wild West. What are you going to do? And he's like, I'm going to keep punching people, I guess. <laughs> um. So, like, there's, like, a convenience to when the bad guys are bad. Like, there's a way that we as the players get to find out that, oh, yeah, they're definitely bad. That's not that easy in reality in in the world we live in. So I think I actually really like Particio's story because it it feels so simple. He's, like, to me, he's, like, the superhero of, like, not just, like, distribution of wealth, but, like, the belief that, that... people will like handle things well like he's not a micromanager he's not leaning anywhere towards like um like sort of a socialist approach other than with his own resources and his own wealth he's like everyone else can do what they want once they get a freaking <laughs> steam engine but i'm gonna make sure everyone gets one and you're like okay bro right, yeah. like he do understands it. the limitations of himself too right like he just totally gets that like you can't control how other people are going to use stuff and he like he's the only person yeah. who's in charge of his what he does, and he can try and help as much as he wants to, but like once it's out of his hands, then it's up to the people, and then like then it's just like you know you can't there he's 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 basically a normal guy, and he just kind of deals with his situations like and he's like he's smart, but he's like pretty simple as well in some ways, like it's definitely like not the sharpest tool in the box for certain things, but yeah, he's just a big sweetheart, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He's not my favorite, but he's definitely awesome. Um the you're Zach, you hinted at a theory on who you consider the main character, and I'm interested on on where we go with that later, but I was going to mention uh our our little newspaper <laughs> reporting friend. Indeed. Um, <laughs> that surprised me. <laughs> that who, surprised me. Like Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, this is a spoiler cast, so yeah, there's these um, four 
four or five sort of um, surprise villains that you find out about way at the end of the game, not just after the eight individual stories and the four cross stories, which was a really cool feature. Um, but then, like, the post-game scenario. I'm not sure. Did you guys notice um, when you cleared part two of each of the cross scenarios, the the emblem in the bottom yeah. right of, like, the loading screen, like, mm -hmm. a light would go out, and that light was one of the four... Um, yeah. flames uh like the sacred flames and then so once all four are out that's that's when like the real post game uh stuff starts and so yeah there were these there were certain characters that like were behind the scenes doing super awful things from the start but you didn't you didn't necessarily know it um one was uh Temenos's coworker and sort of friend Mint and uh, another one was this uh, this little kid who follows uh, Partitio around. Is like I smell a story, and like at the end of each chapter, like they show this newspaper, uh, and like this kid apparently is the one writing it. And when you find their journal entries, it's all like uh, they're dealing with all this darkness and stuff, and then they're all like, "But I'm fun. Like this person's really actually mm -hmm. inspirational to me," um, and I. Think among like all the dark or bad characters, this is the only one that is redeemed, if I remember, or like survives anyway. <laughs> or there's a hint that he survives. I don't remember if you actually. Yeah, beat I him don't think you don't know. Um, you have no idea. But I I think there's something that says like you know the others essentially you kill them or they die through other means. But uh, I think yeah he lives, which is great. Um. But yeah, I really liked like the whole time you think like, oh yeah, this this is just some cute kid and it's like a fun addition, but like nothing nothing's mm -hmm. wasted in the story. I think mm -hmm. there's something economical about the way they're using these characters and developing these characters and then what's his name? The the Eagle oh, of Kazan, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, that's that was insane. And you get a hint of it at the end of chapter four. You get a chance to read I think in the palace you can find a, a journal entry from Oboro, and you can start to put yeah. together as early as that before Ikari's story is even over. That oh, there's something, there's something more sinister than his brother in all of this. Um, but yeah, I love the the sort of surprise twist, dark villain characters, and that their motives make sense. Like all of their motives make a ton of sense if you understand what's going on. Anyway, my favorite character story, if I may. Yeah, go you for may. it. I, I wanna know. It it's a really tough call for me. You know, we talked about the the sort of like obviously bright or light ones, you know, Agnia and uh and Partici are are very uh you know light, bright, inspirational. Um and then I think there are three that are especially dark. And those are Throne, Oswald, and um, Casti. Um, and I really like dark stories. And I think for me, I, I have to, I have to give it to Oswald. It's a great choice. Um, I know. I, I. So I'm going to go full spoiler. Right at at the very beginning, at the, right from the start, it's it's. 
your what's what's his Harvey. Harvey. What's the antagonist's name? <laughs> Harvey. Yeah. Harvey. Uh, his <laughs> Harvey. His 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 bro Harvey. They're they're looking for some. They're looking for I think the octopath equivalent of the Grand mm-hmm. Unified Theory. Um, the one true magic that's like non-elemental but is also all elements. I don't know. They're looking for it and essentially Oswald's looking for it in math and Harvey's looking for it in biology is the form that I'm getting from it. And uh, as Oswald gets closer and closer, he thinks, all right, Harvey's coming to steal his research when uh, Harvey goes insane and kills his wife and daughter in a fire and then frames Oswald for it and you spend five years in jail. And actually, when you start Oswald's story, you can't rejoin the party until you've cleared chapters one and two because he has to be uh on this like yeah solitary <laughs> cold island uh like for an extended period of time so it was like this narrative and sort of it's actually framing one of my favorite things they do They're in this game really- yeah i mean like it, it makes it feel longer even though i feel like his chapter one and two were like the same length as a chapter one it was like it they probably like were, it. but you yeah. get this. You're, you feel like, yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah, five. Sure. This is five years. Yeah, it it really does stick with you. But then, man, as you go further in the game, you find out like the truth is actually so much worse than what. Like at the beginning, I was like, oh, like that's so horrible. But like he'll get his revenge, and it's a revenge story, and we'll be fine. No, not at all. You find out that Harvey uh, just killed two random people and threw their bodies. Uh, in your house and lit it on fire so everyone thought that your wife and daughter were dead but they're not because he's been experimenting on them for the last five years uh because apparently oswald's wife uh comes from some like magical blood lineage uh that like has the power to do cool stuff and so like he's experimenting with her blood and with the daughter's blood and uh at the end of chapter three he without Oswald ever getting the chance to see his wife again, but finding out, oh, she's been alive all this time. Like, she comes out and she's just, like, this horrendous giant the monster. Full metal and she's alchemist the boss of chapter of three. Traveler too. Yeah. Yes, it is, it is intensely dark, and then after you take her out, uh, <laughs> Harvey's like, well, no matter, I still got one more thing to work with, and he brings out, like, a brainwashed, lobotomized version of your daughter who doesn't recognize you and refers to Harvey as her dad, like, oh, dark as dark can be. So messed up. Uh, so when you finally take Harvey out, it feels great. Um, yeah, and you also you also learn, uh, like, you get a, like a story-based uh, skill unlock in the one true magic, um, which I also liked very much. Um, and then the post game, of course, um, that even though like the daughter is saved, like she, like Oswald's like I can't, like I can't be your dad. Like I'm all messed up. She's all messed up. So he goes to his old assistant, whose name I'm forgetting, but she's a really good character, um, who has good a good post game side quest as well, um, and she's like, yeah, I'll care for your daughter while you go you know, take care of the rest of things, because this is another thing that two does so much better than one. 
there is a strong sense that after all eight characters, you know, sort of personal missions are done, mm-hmm. there's something still wrong. Um, whereas in the first game, you really had to go out of your way to find that out. And in this one, like, it isn't <laughs> too hard to find. They, they give you a like, giant they, spot they, on the map and say, hey, they go keep here. you on the path. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go here and see what's about to happen. And no, you're but like, I'm, oh, I'm glad know, you talked about, about, about that, though, because I think it gets to one of the things that I think is really strong about the storytelling here, which is like the way that they interlock at least a little bit and also the side quest element like sure it's like a little bit convenient that like almost every single story has something to do with this like overwhelming evil outside of agnia which i think is maybe a little bit tired but like it's it does a really good job even like those post-game side quests which have you know great um obviously great items that you want to get from them like i I was able to steal a battle-tested bow off of somebody i think because of that side quest that you were you were referring to but I, I think that it makes everything mm-hmm. in this game feel really interlocked and the lore feel really strong. Um, and, and I think like the way that Harvey comes up in the post game, which I guess we'll talk about more here in a little bit, um, makes everything just feel like it is. Uh, it, it feels more just like it's not chapter one through four, and then story over. Um, and I, th- I think that's a really a strength of this game. Yeah, like Harvey is one of the strongest ties to the end game as well. Like Harvey, Harvey in particular is like, I didn't realize this until like reading some of the notes afterwards. But um, Harvey is the one that turns whatever animal you don't pick in Ochet's theme into the evil that it becomes. So like the dark hunter takes the animal to Harvey, and Harvey turns it into this evil, suffering being. So it's like even more yep. so like. Harvey is so tied into the Moonshade Order, um, which is the name of the big bag order that you end up going up against, essentially. Um, right. They have they have a mutually beneficial relationship. Mm-hmm. He's trying to figure out all his stuff, and they're all like, well, he's dabbling in darkness and looking for these tomes that we need, so, yeah, let's all make stuff work together. I think from Mint's perspective, she thought of him as a pawn, but he definitely got a lot done. I want to ask real quick, did you guys pick the owl or the wolf when you were I picked the owl. I also <laughs> picked the owl. I don't know anyone who has picked the wolf. Right. I also it's picked the funny owl. funny because like the reason I picked the owl was to cover the elemental thing, like the elemental part of like Ochet that she doesn't have, but by that point I had Throne and Temenos when I recruited her, so I was kind of like, well, I don't really need this, but Mahina does come in useful and Akala um you know covers like extra physical Thing. so it depends on like what order you do it in but like come on it's a little owl and it sits on the edge of the boat when you get in it like it's what very are you supposed cute to... it's so cute <laughs> it's she's cute. so cute that it also tears me up to think that like no matter what you do one of those animals is going to get tortured for a decade right. and also die. be for me the hardest the hardest chapter four or five boss <laughs> like i really struggled on that boss because it was the second one i did um after because uh, i hikari yeah. was my main and so i decided to do mugen first um but man i i struggled on that box or wolf or whatever it's whatever it is for like a while outside of like you know the last two vide and galdera that was those are the two that i struggled with the most okay so i i i feel like i should probably talk about my favorite and i feel like i'm choosing the correct favorite so you're welcome, you both. <laughs> I'm picking Temenos. You're picking Temenos. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, I I think yeah. for a lot of yeah. people that's the correct favorite. And I mean the Sherlock Holmes vibe is just yeah. so perfect. Yeah, I mean like everything about it is so great. I mean, it. like it's got like the classic JRPG, the church is bad, 
it's got uh, a main character who's like a doubter, but also um, is is a man of faith. And I think it's fascinating. You've got Crick, who like is this like young, naive Sanctum Knight who plays beautifully off of Temenos. And they have a great they have a great sort of, you know, interplay. And I love the music. It feels like a little Sherlock Holmes. I love uh, just ha- how sassy Temenos is all the time. It's fantastic. Like, like the story itself is like fine. Like, but I, you know, I'm not looking for like, uh, I'm not looking for like, you know, high art here. I'm looking for a fun character with fun interplay. And that is exactly what Temenos does. I, I feel like when Crick dies, it is genuinely affecting. And like uh-huh. seeing Temenos's reaction to Crick's death, I think is genuinely affecting. Uh, because you you see Temenos as this person who sort of holds everything away from him, right? And so I, I feel like that is a moment that really did something for me. And it, it just has like such a strong through line. And, and for me, actually, I think the two strongest stories are Temenos's and Casti's, uh, which are both like sort of this weird mystery blend, but also healers. They're obviously very different people. But I, I think that both of them sort of drove me forward because like I wanted to know like who who was responsible who did this how did it happen and even though i don't think the the answer in temenos's story is necessarily super satisfying the the journey to get there i think was really interesting and i just love his character he's such a fun character like such a we haven't really touched on this too much but like almost every character in this game is like the opposite or an opposite version of the trope that we saw in Octopath 1. So, like, Alberic is, like, the noble knight, whereas Hikari is the gentle prince, right? And then you've got, in contrast, like, you've got Ophelia is literally, like, the purest kind of... She is literally, like, if you drew a picture of a cleric in an RPG... She reminds me of Min Adnade from Tales of Fantasia, actually, Ophelia. Like, she's literally, like, the template white mage Mm -hmm. in my head. But, like, Temenos, one, it's a male cleric white mage, which you don't really get enough of anyway. And he's got, like, this sassy, like, attitude, kind of like Nicleo in Tales of Zestiria, who is also, like, the healer in that game. Um, But, like, it's such a fun dynamic, because you always expect the healer to be, like, pure and nice and gentle. And then Temenos is, like, in battle, and he's just like, oh, what a bother. And I'm like, (laughs) just really love like the way that he deals with things but as you said zach like i think what makes temenos really tick and his story work really well is like you do get those like you know moton like 70 percent of the time he is this like doubting person who's like trying to figure things out and he's like playing not the snake but he's like slippery like he doesn't want to get too involved with the church but the church are always like pushing him away and he's like no i'm gonna stick my nose in and like make sure you like give me what i want um but like when Crick dies, and even when the pontiff dies, and then there's like his mentor from right before the story, right, that also dies, um, that he reflects on quite a lot. Um, like he really like he literally is like bearing the weight of the cross of those three people who have died as a result of things that or he believes as a result of like his actions. So like that's where his like faith and his doubt kind of come in. He's like, Oh, I like believe in people to a degree, but also like the choices that I've made may have affected these people's lives. And, you know, if I hadn't got Temino, if I hadn't got Crick involved and I hadn't got the Pontiff involved, or if the Pontiff, if I'd been a bit quicker, then maybe I could have saved them. Um, but 
I always love it when a religious figure in a fiction like doubts their faith because I find it really interesting the way that they deal with those. I think Temenos is is just about dealt with well enough. Like it just teases it throughout the story. He's just kind of like you can't you can't put your like I, I don't really remember how he words it, but it's like you can't like totally rely on things like that essentially. Um, and he really understands again. It's all about people and the choices people make. Um, but like again, he's not like against the church. He just doubts because he knows that it's not the be all and end all that a lot of people put their like put faith into. Right? Like maybe again, that's like a misinterpretation of my half. Um, Temenos is also one of the chapters that like has a split chapter in it so like you have two different paths in chapter three mm -hmm. um and so i like the way that they do that throughout the game um Temenosis is like one direction you can go and interrogate the criminal that you would rest in chapter two with uh crick and then the other one is where you go to the sun temple in the like rock area mm -hmm. um and you find out about the moonshade order so yeah uh so one of the things I loved about path actions with day and night was that there were more and more ways to get to the same thing. In the first game, if you wanted to get the whole, like, get information on people and uh, also, like, if they have, like, hit an item or, you know, discount at stores, all of those features, um, your options were scrutinize through the scholar or um, inquire through the merchant. Was it the merchant or the apothecary? Mm -hmm. It's the apothecary. It's inquired through the apothecary. Uh, but now they added interrogate option where you enter a one-on-one -on -one fight like you would with challenger, provoke, or mug. You don't have to, and you're not supposed to, actually defeat the person, like get all their HP down, but you are literally going to break them like you would in an interrogation. You have to get their shield points down so they would break. And then the battle ends and you get the sequence. The idea that the cleric is running around and just physically breaking people to get information to me is both dark and funny. So his catchphrase, doubt is what I do, is, you know, it's actually, it's in line with the role he played in his church, which is uh, the role of Inquisitor. Um, and, you know, in, Inquisitor, you know, in, in, you know, traditional Christian church, Catholic church, in one sense, you know, they existed to make sure people were in line with purity of belief, but uh, especially within their own church, their their role is also to suspect wrongdoing and find wrongdoing. So doubt is what I do made sense in the realm of distrusting his own people and distrusting his own church, especially when he sees, you know, wrong things done. Um, then he's like, oh, this is an inside job with my church. I got to figure out who's the rogue element here. But in his dialogue with Crick, who's sort of this, has a sort of simple faith, you know, when they start talking about things like whether there is any sort of divinity that's watching out for them or that cares uh, or that wants to see things made right, Crick's like, well, yeah, of course. And uh, Temenus is like, yeah, man, don't be so sure. <laughs> And then, and then, sadly, Crick dies, and Temenos is still alive to have to deal with that. And he's like, "Should I have told him to doubt his faith?" Because the whole reason Crick dies is he goes out, sort of investigating on his own, and runs into someone that, uh, in running into them, is sort of a "you know too much" situation, and then they kill Crick. And I think Temenos figures that out and knows that, oh, if I didn't put the seed of like 
doubt and and like curiosity in him, maybe he wouldn't have gone off exploring on his own. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that um, they 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 play it in so many different ways that I think like even if you're like a person of faith, I think like you recognize. Uh, the sort of person that Temenos is, and I think that makes it all work really interestingly. And I agree, like they they do really interesting things with gameplay here. I think like Mug is an interesting way of doing it too, uh, of just like communicating character. And I think that that is uh, it, it is a great thing that they do. Um, but I want to pick on something that Alana was talking about earlier, which is I think some of the ways in which the storytelling here is a little bit different. Um, just can keep things moving. Um, because there there are so many things we could talk about. I think that like Hikari's story is really engaging and feels maybe the most classical JRPG. And I love his chapter two, uh, where you oh, yeah. meet Kazan, I think is great. Um, I think Cassidy's story is good from beginning to end, uh, especially their her chapter three and four. I think Agnia's story is underrated and fun. Um we, we could talk about all of them, right? Um, but I I kind of want to hone in on the um the differences in storytelling here, because I think one of the major criticisms of Octopath one was that like, Oh, these stories feel really separate. And I think they do a lot of things to improve that while not necessarily fixing it. Uh, one of the main things of course, is the crossed paths, which uh, Pat and Alana both talked about earlier, which are, you know, in between, I think it's after everyone's chapter two, you get, if you clear like the two characters who are involved in that cross path, you get a, a a short story that involves these two characters. And then when you clear their final chapters, you get those cross paths as well. But also like uh, Ochet, for example, who is the hunter who needs to um, go find the beast to protect her island. Um, she has three chapter twos and just one chapter three. And then like Throne, a, she's following mother and father for uh, her chapter two and three and then all, her other chapter two and three. And so I guess I wanted to sort of see like what you guys thought about like the variation in the storytelling, if there were any cross paths that you guys really liked. Um, and then we'll kind of you know, sort of see, uh, segue that into uh, the, the, the final chapter, which I think is uh, in some ways one of my favorite parts of the game, but also I think one of the weaker parts of the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Um, but like, I want to talk about Hikari and Agnia's cross path, because I think in the same way that people like underrate Agnia, I think that like it's a really important cross path because it's like such a it's a way more personal and it's sort of way more historical um and in many ways it like doesn't really tie into the end as much as the others um but i really like hikari and agnia's like dynamic together um but i also really enjoy particularly the second half of it because in the first half you meet like this um you meet this koto player essentially and she like is like oh i'll write you a piece of music and you can dance to it and you have to do like various things for her and then she'll play you this piece of music under the moonlight and it's beautiful and it's lovely and it's great. And then. And it's, it's slow. Like it mm. forces you to like really stop and think. And I love how in that scene also, they do this with a lot of Agnia sequences. Um, they'll have music and they'll sort of show lyrics, but no one's mm -hmm. actually singing like a vocal part. So you really have to put your mind to it it made me feel like i was playing like a ps1 yeah. jrpg yeah it's really good great. and then the chapter two um it's after uh, you are in coup i believe if i remember right you are. Yes, yes it's after the chapter it's after the last chapter isn't it um and so like you're trying to restore the city after like reclaiming it and you're like oh we need like a celebration and then hikari's like no i don't want a celebration because we've lost so many people and Agnia's like, but wait, you can celebrate 
but also remember the lives that you lost and it's like a really interesting blend of like using music and dance and performance to like honor and celebrate and mourn and all of these like things that you know people always think are like separate but actually sometimes the whole thing is like if you not not that celebration and mourning should go together you know what i mean but like it's like an acknowledgement of like the reclamation of coup has come at the loss and the blood of so many people that the only way you can really like capture and like really honor those people is by like doing something really beautiful and thoughtful i think and so you go to a cave where you hear this like mystical koto player and it's the same woman and you find out i think it's her sister um is was killed i don't actually remember the specific details um sister sounds right to me yeah and I, she's mad because like it's uh, hikari is obviously you know a member of the ku family um and so you have to get into a deal with her and you beat her and then Agnia and her team up and as part of this like remembrance of the people that have fallen they perform this dance and song and again like pat said at the end of chapter the first one it like really slows everything down and it is really a moment of reflection and i think that like it's just a really a really nice like it captures like because Agnia is so like simple but she understands people so well and she understands like the power of like emotion and empathy and Hikari does too, but Hikari's like a very different, like he's totally different to his brother Mugen, who is like evil and like almost comically evil. Like Mugen is everything you expect like some kind of dictatorial leader to be, um, and extremely bloodthirsty as well. Um, but Hikari is like the gentle prince and again wants to do the best for his people, and he like wears that honor and that weight really heavily. Mm. I think he literally says, doesn't he, like the crown? Or, no, I think Kazan says to him like the crown is but is heavy or something which is you know like one of the little little shakespearean reference yeah a little bit yeah um but like and but agnia understands that but she's also like you can do all of this like you don't need to like bear the weight yourself like everybody wants to everybody wants to acknowledge the past and you can still celebrate those lives and also celebrate where you are but also remember those lives and mourn them and send them off appropriately um but like it gets to like a lot of the general pacing of the game in general i say like Mm -hmm. octopath one has such a really 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 good momentum um and i think like there are moments where it slows down and deliberately so but it never feels like it's dragging like it always feels very purposeful Mm -hmm. when things go steadier like even the slower stories like you know there's there's whole chapters where there is no fighting or there's no boss like ochet's one of ochet's chapter twos where you go get a cataractor or the little the tiny version of character which i can't remember the name of right now but you find out that it's dead (laughs) yeah um and you don't fight anything because you know there's no boss and so you have moments like that and i think one of one of temenos's chapters as well is similar um that you don't have to fight anyone it's just like chapters is like that too yeah yeah there are multiple chapters where you are do not fight anything but then there are also chapters with different stakes, right? Like Agnia's, like her first chapter, she fights a boar. Whereas in like Oswald's chapter one, he escapes prison and kills like a <laughs> warden and like makes a boat out of ice and escapes the prison and everything. Yeah. And it's like, it just, re- it's a really beautiful balancing act of like all these different like tones and pacing and things like that. And like, I always feel like, I always feel like everything's done with purpose in this game. Like the momentum is always going. I'm traveling around. I'm experiencing this world. 
and I'm getting everything from this world I think I would ever want. And so I think that, that the cross paths do a really good job of like tying those stories together. If I had a criticism, I wish there was either more or they were slightly longer because they're like 10 minutes, some of them. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, come on, <laughs> like, really? Yeah, I mean, I do feel like um, it's one of the things that I think makes this game stronger, even if they didn't have the crossed paths. And even if they didn't have the, um, you know, multiple chapter twos or threes, that they're willing to vary the way they tell the story. And I think that in Octopath 1, it is like, show up to a town, very specific problem, ties into your problem, move forward, the end. Yep. And like, it's boom, 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 boom. And it really feels like samey by the end. Whereas here, I never felt that way. And I think that the different ways you can interact with the world have something to do with that. I think that even like the different like secret hidden story type things, like, I'm not sure how many of you guys figured out how to break the little kid who had the stuffed toy in uh crackridge and it wasn't crackridge it was uh north of crackridge um and then you have to break him and you get it's like a really awesome staff but like when you gravel. In, yeah gravel but you investigate him and he just says like death destruction um and like even like the foreign assassins that you meet outside of uh, that southeast town i can't remember the names of any of the towns now but um like just like the different things they put in to make it feel like a playground but also make it feel like a more lived-in world, but also a story. The storytelling can have different rhythms. I think that's so huge to this this game's success. Yeah, the different rhythms is the big thing, right? That is what makes the pacing feel good. In the first game, it's like, all right, I have 32 chunks to take on. It's just eight times four. Here we go. And uh, where things take place, like which towns and all that, like... You have your starting town, you have towns that are sort of mid, and then you have endgame towns. Now, 2 also still has that in some ways, but there's more mix and match, and because of things like cross-path, they can use whatever setting they want for cross-path, and, like, they can make it work. Then there's things like, we didn't even mention, like, Partitio's, like, like I smell a business oh. opportunity thing, like, how you get it's your so own good. boat oh, yeah. to yeah. sail um, in the ocean, and, like, gaining access to... Um, the basically the the sound menu the test menu where you can just play music was like you essentially are like i'm gonna invent the gramophone here we go well someone else is gonna invent it and you help him i like, I like how party she was in, involved in like the invention of like some of the most like important inventions in the industrial revolution period and he's right, involved in all of them. Mall, <laughs> yeah, shopping the mall. shopping mall the gramophone <laughs> the archive the library it's like Come on. I, I kind of love it, though. <laughs> yeah, he's he's great. Yeah, he's like, uh, yeah, those side things were just really fun and really cute. And so, like, almost every character has some sort of, like, thing on the side that you are going to uh, access or, or experience at different points at different times. Um, and, it, yeah, it just feels uh, more fluid just by being... Uh, less structured and less rigid than the first game. Though I like structure, like I think it's why I like the first Octopath so much. So going into the second one, knowing I'm going to get kind of the same experience, but I yeah. bet they they messed with it, and they messed with it for the better in like every instance. I can't think of a single change where I'm like, oh, I liked mm -hmm. it more in the first one. I I really can't. And and again, I I literally just played through the first one to compare and contrast to see if I wasn't 
misinterpreting like my own memories or my own thoughts and it's like no no the second game's just really good oh yeah and i think that two also does side characters a lot better like like you mentioned i had to google her name clarissa is the name of the assistant for oswald and like the minute she turned up, I was like, oh, she's going to be important. And I was like, how is she going to get involved? How is she going to do this? How is she going to do that? And she comes back repeatedly, and I remember her. I'm like, all right, I remember Ori, but Ori ends up being one of the villains, and that's probably one of the main reasons I remember her, even if she's like a tenacious like little um, reporter who's like, no, I've got to get this scoop. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And I'm going to fake a stomach bug in front of the guard so you can get through. Like, She does all these little things, but like, there are other characters as well. Like, the the beastling who helps Temenos through the forest, or like Agnia's little sister, Parla, or even Mint, like Mint, who I thought was going to be a small character before. I remembered her the whole way through because she was the one who was like, oh, I'm going to write to you, I'm going to write to you, I'm going to do this. <laughs> like, there was always like ways that people tied in. And I just like really, and again, like Casty's got one of my favorites. The little girl and her mother, the mother who dies because she's sick and like the ruler of the town. It's the only Um, time I shed tears during this game, but I did during that chapter. That yeah that chapter is intense. The one with the garden, the little botanical garden where she grows the herbs. And I love the post game story with the themes in that garden too. It's lovely. Yeah those those thieves are from the first game as well. They have the oh, same names. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Mick and Mac. Mick and Mac. Yeah, though they add the third Yeah, they add the third one. I can't remember. She's she was new and I was like, is that just sort of a cute reference like a like a Biggs and Wedge thing in Final Fantasy or like are they actually the same character and they're going to like travel <laughs> through the gate of Venice? Yeah. But yeah, you just remember so many of the little stories as well. Like it's not just about the eight travelers, it's about everybody else this time as well. Like you know, it's about uh oh my gosh, uh who's the guy that you fight before Mugen? Um, like Hikari's like best friend. Oh, I can't remember his name. He's a good character but his, though. His 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 sister like plays mm-hmm. such an important part. She gets like her own post game quest, mm-hmm. but you see bits of her, like even Hikari's mom who's dead at this point, like you get things from her and it's like yeah, it, it, again, I you, I think you said this earlier, Zach, like, it's a way more lived-in world, and it just helps the pacing so much more, and even, like, there was, like, a side quest, and I didn't realize, this didn't twig, like, immediately, but it, in Oswald's chapter, obviously, the this person called Emerald helps you escape, right? And then you eventually go to, oh god, it's one of the Leafland towns, um, and there's this woman who's like, oh, my son went to prison. Um, I'm really angry at him. Right. And then you give her this note in a bottle, and it's from Emerald. And it's like, oh my god, there's like this character in chapter one, like 50 hours later, mm-hmm. being acknowledged again. And it's like, it, it feels like it's a living, breathing world that mm-hmm. things are changing at the same pace that you're doing things, right? You have direct influence on people's lives, and it, it's just way way more intricate and way more like again i'm gonna use the phrase again it's like a big playground like there's so much to discover and so much to do and it all feels purposeful the follow-through with so many uh supporting cast members is really good and i think that example that example might be my favorite as well like um the prison break sequence is so great but it's so hard that like you're the only one who makes it that like your co-conspirator like there's no way, and he, he essentially sacrifices himself so you can make it on your little ice right. boat. <laughs> Why can't I do that for the rest of the game? Um, like... just, yeah, yeah, ice boat is fun. But, like, 
to bring closure to that in a side quest was like, I mm-hmm. thought that was very valuable. And like, there's just dozens of things like that in the just the way the game is built up. That yeah, it's just better storytelling and better world building than the first game. Like, there's just so much more care put into it. Like the side quests in the first game, there's just so many that it's like, oh, you're telling me about some random character that I, I don't. I don't care about. <laughs> like, yeah, there are other ones that you do care about in the first one. There, there's some good ones, but like, there's a lot more good ones in the second one. That like, oh yeah, this, I'm glad to know this story had mm-hmm. some more follow through. Now we're going to talk about the final chapter, uh, which is the uh, the thing that I think, oh. um, uh, and we'll talk about this. I because the final chapter, those of you who haven't played, uh, once you've done every other person's chapter, final chapter, which could be three, four, or five in this case, we get uh, you know, this sort of thing on the map that says like, "Hey, go here to do the end." Oh yeah, you, you do have to do, have to do the cross paths as well because they're often involved in the overall story. Yeah. Um, and once you've done all that, you, you you go there, and then you are eight people in front of a, a a giant fire out in the middle of the woods, in the middle of some continent. I don't remember what area it, it is in, but it's the same as the key art, basically, as as that first scene of the final chapter. And uh, it brings a lot of threads together because you you can see sort of threads throughout. Like so, Hikari, oftentimes throughout the game, will have like this dark. Um, power emanating from him that sort of takes him over uh you find out that throne a's dad is this immortal who is trying to find somebody he's trying to like basically sleep with everyone possible and he has like this horrific town that is basically just like a breeding farm for him or temenos's uh story the involvement of that organization and so that they, they sort of lay these seeds throughout, which they did a little tiny, teeny, tiny bit in the first game. Uh, but here it's it's more obvious that there is something else going on. But one of the most common criticisms of the first game was that like the main cast didn't interact enough. And I still think that is a weakness if I had to pick one out um, outside of just like annoyances with, you know, um, menus, which I have um, that they don't interact enough. And, and I think the thing that's interesting here is like when they do interact, you can see how fantastic their interplay is. You can mm-hmm. see how amazing it is to have all these characters on screen at once and see the way they talk to each other. And then we get um, a, a final chapter where we find out, as Pat alluded to earlier, that you know four of these characters, like that journalist we were talking about earlier, is someone who's involved. Kazan, who is actually a Boro, um, who was the um, strategist for Hikari, who I think is a great character. Um, is really like the big bad who's trying to summon V-Day, the ultimate evil, back again. Um, so I guess I, I, my question is what, what sort of what your feelings are on the final chapter um, and uh, sort of your overall impressions of the way it works and whether you would have liked to have seen more of it or that you like the more personalized storytelling of Octopath 1. I feel mixed about it. Narratively, I think it's cool. But I do think that some of them, even though all of them have a reason, I think some of them do not make like it's just like oh we just want them all to be together for the same purpose like it's very frustrating to me that like Ori and Kazan are brother and sister and the only way we ever know that is through diary entries we don't see them interact at all and it's like hang on what um but like I I really like the idea of going around and like putting the two 
cross paths people together in the party to activate the statues to like relight the flame and i did like the fact that mint was kind of involved um but like interestingly for as much as kazan is such a cool character like in hikari's story i was suspicious of him probably from like chapter three on especially when he like summons wind out of nowhere i was like come on dude you're like you're way too good for this i bet you set all of this up deliberately and guess what i was right um but i was still surprised that kazan wasn't his real name and that all the villains names also spell octopath woohoo because aboro claude trousseau ori petrichor arcanet which is mint's real name um tansy who is the girl in the dance troupe that the um the theater troupe that's going around in agnea's story who's um i think her husband or her boyfriend like died um and so she's like she's constantly saying like oh i pray to god like i wish i she constantly makes like religious like phrases or says things and then harvey's obviously the h um but like i didn't know <laughs> so real real quick um yeah for people less familiar with the games or maybe you didn't notice this in both octopath games your your protagonists uh the first letter that it's an acronym thing uh or an acrostic right uh, you have an O and a C and mm-hmm. a T and an O and a P and an A and a T and an H. Those are the eight main characters. They did that a second time around with this game. Uh, I did not know they did that with antagonists. <laughs> Holy crap. I learned yeah, something. Um, but I think that like some of them make sense. Like Obviously Claude, who is um, Throne's real father and the actual real leader of the Black Snakes. Um, Claude is actually like an immortal and the whole idea that he's an immortal is because they want him to be the vessel for V-Day. Like, Claude is meant to be the vessel for V-Day. This powerful immortal being. So, okay, that makes sense. And Harvey makes sense because one true magic and, you know, um, I think even Tansy to a degree makes sense because she thinks her life's meaningless because her husband's dead. And there are lots of things that make it make sense to me. Petricor has no involvement in the story at all apart from just influencing some of the hunters in Chapter 3 with a glasses in uh Ochet's story. And I'm like, oh cool, this thief's e- this this hunter's evil. Do I get to see them or fight them ever? No. Oh, okay. Um, and I also think that like Kazan's like the way I, I do do they really ever justify they do sort of, but in the very like generic JRPG way of like, oh, I think the world needs to start again, blah blah blah. And then Kazan just like falls into the pit and like sacrifices himself to become the vessel for V Day. I'm like okay um but i do think it's really cool that all of these characters get their moment and like depending on who you pick as your first character they get to say something to kazan and it's different depending on who you pick and it fits their philosophy perfectly so like thronaise is essentially like oh you know there are bad things in the world but you know we can go past them things like that and i'm sure hikari's is more personal because you know kazan is like literally his his mentor for most of his story right. and now he's just because I, I did a curry and i was playing it for review so obviously i got there before anybody else and i was like oh i wonder if they change the final antagonists based on this um, because it seems so perfect for hikari yeah it would have been really interesting if they had done i think um but then they'd have to justify even more i think some of them like you know how can you make emotional stakes with ochet with petrichor right and Tansy, you probably could with Agnia, but Agnia's story is so, like, deliberately detached from the rest of it that, like, it would feel like a bit of a stretch. So I do love the way that it ties together in some ways, but I think in other ways it feels, like, a little bit arbitrary. And to be honest, like, I felt, like, 
like I said at the beginning, I didn't do Goldera in the first game because I didn't really see the narrative benefit of it. And there is more of a narrative benefit to it here. And I really like the epilogue where you're going around uh, bright the bright uh, wherever you start with Throne and you go around and talk to people. And I love that. But like overall, honestly, like and again, it was like cool mechanically, like the boss fight against V-Day is very cool. I was unfortunately extremely overleveled for it by the time I got there. Um, so it wasn't too hard. Um, but I was frustrated and like it 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 like I definitely prefer the individualistic storytelling of Octopath overall to the like the attempt to tie everything together in a neat little bow. It doesn't need to be. I'm happy with the threads and I'm but then I, I wonder if it had been a longer chapter maybe i would have gotten more out of it like it's one of those things i'm not going to know unless they decide to tie it together and make like a 10 hour epilogue in octopath 3 you know so we'd have to see um but as it stands like there are parts of it that feel a little bit arbitrary to me um but like i get to fight a really big cool boss with a piece of music that nastanori nishiki has composed with baritone singers and like heavy metal music and then like opera and i'm like yeah, you know what? Actually, it was worth it. I don't really care about any like narrative like stakes. <laughs> uh, I think I might come from this from a different perspective. You know, a lot of people really did complain about um, the lack of connection with the first game, and I remember going around arguing with people. I was like seriously having like lame internet arguments with old friends, uh, as one does. You know, it's excellent, as one does, and. Uh, I still stand by my my thoughts here, but I get where they're coming from. That you know what connects things in the first game is not the eight characters you play as, but kind of the generation before them. Like you kind of need to understand like like how did Red Eye come into existence with um, Hanet's story, and like who is Graham Crossford, and like uh, like all this stuff about the world that your character sort of tandet tangentially are touching up against that all leads to all the stuff with kit and Liblack and all of that um but it's like super indirect and most of what you find out is is in the boss rush right. the eight fights yeah. before galdera there's these it's, like super long i think it's bad storytelling personally but yes <laughs> so here's the thing it is bad storytelling <laughs> but i don't care if it's good or bad storytelling because uh at the very least, I, I was seeking answers and I got them, and and to me that was okay. super satisfying. Like when you read it, you're like, okay, yeah, you could have told this way better, you could have presented this to us way better, but the what it is that you're presenting was still really good. Um, so in the second game, my hope was for all those people who were like, well, you didn't give me a reason to do all that complicated end game stuff. Plus, it was a super hard boss. Whereas in this game. They still gave us a super hard with a Galdera refight, but V-Day wasn't like a, a stupid hard boss. It was hard, but it was like a it was it was instead of being like a ridiculously hard optional boss, it felt more like true mm -hmm. final boss material for an RPG. And in that sense, it, I think it was it was giving fans what they wanted and what they said they lacked from the first game. Some of it does feel forced. I think Petricor is a character that I kind of wish had some ex like seriously if they just had a little more time and a little more budget they probably could have done more to flesh out the the sort of the 
the anti here not even anti sort of the eight antagonists of Octopath and and Petra of course the worst offender of them uh, with Tansy sort of probably being the second worst but even without having done that I thought the end chapter was great I liked the idea that um, the world literally yeah. fell into darkness like oh no more sunlight uh, until we until we fix this problem. Um, or at least started fixing it. Like there were, there were a lot of implications to that. You know, the game was all about day-night cycle, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're stuck in night. Like that actually affects and impacts things. Now that you've started, and I think there's a warning before you start yeah. the final chapter. Like, hey, <laughs> you might want to keep a separate save um, because things are about to get funky, and they did. Um, so I really appreciated mm-hmm. that aspect of it. That like all right, this is a real thing. We're doing it. We're locked in. This is changing things for everyone, the whole world. And I don't know, that aspect of it to me was kind of awesome. Again, people, I I might be the only one in the world that thinks reading journals and diary entries is actually fun. There was that one dungeon where basically you get to read like 17 journal entries from Ori. And I think people, uh, a lot of people were like, oh, this, this kind of stuff is just dumb. This is bad. I love that kind of stuff. So maybe these games are just made <laughs> specifically for me because I, I, dude, I, oh, I love it so much. I love like just reading it and putting it together and being like, wait, does that mean, oh no, then that means, and when you put together, yeah, like Ori's the little sister, like, oh, oh, oh my gosh. Um, I love all that stuff so much. I love that, you know, we talked, I think you had said something like Kazan slash Obero is just like, oh, were dark but i know i think there was didn't weren't they uh part of like uh one of the people groups that got like wholesale slaughtered yes. genocided yes, he yeah he was part of the um is it the z or the n i know exactly the root the race that you're talking about yeah because so is ori that's what she points out isn't it yeah, yeah. so actually yes you're right he does have a reason to be there I wish he'd yeah, talked about uh, it, though. Being... I wish it wasn't in a journal entry, unfortunately. <laughs> I know you like that kind of stuff, but yeah. Well, he had his yeah, reasons know, for hiding yeah. it, right? He had to... Yeah. I do think the one thing... You know, you said you were suspicious of him. I wasn't. You know, I... You know, okay, he has... He apparently has drinking issues and a gambling problem. But then at the end of Chapter 2 with Hikari, where it's like, he threw you into this, like, gladiatorial right. arena. And you're like, oh, he, that's like he's kind of a jerk and like that's dangerous but then the end result was like he had it all along like he was going to free everyone from this and we talked about like dark side capitalism uh and that being like a thing like kazan overthrew that and he had this crazy idea to like shut down like (laughs) the like bloodshed slave labor through gladiatorial combat like he he overthrew the whole thing and i'm like oh he's good he's awesome he's too he's smart best. though he's, he's great. smarter than everybody but he's, <laughs> he's i love so him smart. Yeah. and so i didn't like because he did that very good thing i was like oh he can't be bad and then when he was i was like <laughs> no yeah i didn't think he was bad at that point but i was certainly like now nah, there's something different about you like there's no way you can sit there and be like oh yeah i've got all of this planned out i'm just gonna throw you in there and i'm gonna sit here and drink and i'm gonna throw away all my money and ha it's like like it's like one too one too many coincidences for me to be like and i know there's a lot of coincidences in octopath traveler like even both games but like 
in nine times out of ten when coincidence happens in these games, I'm like, yeah, something's up. All, all that to say, uh, I liked the final chapter a lot. I liked all the characters in it. I think the only thing is I would have probably liked it uh, fleshed out more somehow. Um, or dialogue. Uh, maybe turning some of the journal entry stuff into um, actual cutscenes. I think a lot of people would have appreciated that more, and I guess I could get with that too. The guy, the guy who ended up being the the antagonist in Casty's scenario, the guy mm-hmm. who made the poison clouds, he got the idea. Did Claude. he get the idea from Harvey? Claude, or... yes. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, um, I like how like these villains kind of just bumped into each other and were like, "Hey, do something crazy and evil," and then it was just <laughs> like, "Oh yeah, let's do something crazy and evil." Like. Um, I like that it's in the shadows, like narratively it's in the shadows, yeah. but there is another part of me that's like, no, tell me more. And um, so, yeah, maybe more fleshing out would have been good. I think, you know, the, the, the big bad of fighting V-Day at the end was like, like you said, just not just the music and the presentation of it, but also the challenge. I don't think I was overleveled when I went to it. I think it took me, it took me seven or eight tries um, I didn't go. I didn't go back and lo- try to level up at all. I just tried messing with, you know, sub jobs and equipment, and just sort of thinking my way through this fight. And I, I just barely made it uh, the time that I did beat it. So uh, I kind of enjoyed not being overleveled because it was a good challenge at that point. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there was just so much good about it, and and saving saving the game's end credits for that moment, uh, and doing just all of that was. Um, yeah, it felt great. It felt really good. I um so I, I actually think I'm a little more negative on it than Alana is <laughs> for all the reasons that you we, we were just talking about. So like I um I really liked the final fight. Um and I it, for the record, I had no idea Galdera existed because again, I was playing this for reviews. So like I was like, oh, there's this question mark island in the southeast corner that must be for something. And then I played through the final chapter and I'm like, hey. That question mark island's still there. I don't know why. Um, and so I thought V-Day was the Goldera of this game, and I struggled with it enough that I believed it, and I had to use like some of the same like sidestep, you know, arcanist nonsense mm-hmm. that I had to use against Goldera in the first game. Um, but I, uh, I, there are two things I like about it. I like, I think the final fight is cool, and I think like the lead up to it, I like that there isn't a boss rush because you know, screw boss boss rushes. Been playing too much Hollow Knight lately. Um, <laughs> and I like the scenes where they're interacting with each other, but what I hate is the thing that you like, uh, that, which is the lore stuff. Like it feels cute. It feels like they are trying to meet the needs of people who want it to meet up, but they're not willing to do the work to actually make it real. Um, so it's like, Hey, here are these 17 journal entries where you learn 70 things that you didn't know. And why are these journal entries here? Who knows? It totally upends everything you know about the game in so many ways, and it feels cheap. Um, but like, I respect that they tried to do it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it works, but, but I kind of like the dark world element. I like that they take away your navigation tools and you kind of have to look at like these purple clouds. I think that's cool. But I think this idea that everything has to get tied into this neat, tiny little bow um doesn't work for me personally but it's also because like i don't care about lore usually <laughs> i'm not a lore person um when i read lord of the rings i'm like oh tom bombadil i'm gonna skip past that right now people are sc- people are screaming right now as they're listening um and i'm like i want the good storytelling you know what i mean so like um 
I can see how someone would like it, but I guess my hope going forward is that they just, if they're going to continue trying to meet the needs of the people who want the individualized storytelling, like I do, I don't really care so much about the overall story and the people who want it to tie together, like that they do a little bit more work throughout to make it make sense. Like, sure, it made sense at the end. Like, I'm like, okay, Ori really was this evil person who was pretending. I'm like, okay, cool. I never saw her like if I saw her at that moment, even for a brief moment, I think it would have been more effective. Um, so it's just for me, like I I'm more interested in the character element of it than I am in the lore element of it. And that caused me to like it less. But I understand your point as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I can't I can't argue with you. I can't be the me from five years ago who wants to <laughs> have dumb arguments with their friends. <laughs> um, like your point isn't just valid, but it's very clearly seen. And I, it, 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 I probably just does come to matter of preference. Yeah, or for sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. even like neurotype issues. Like maybe some people tend to prefer stories in different mm-hmm. ways yeah, than for others. Sure. Yeah, it totally makes sense to me. Um, so yeah, but I, I guess because um, uh, we are pushing the two-hour mark now, we're going to need to wrap <laughs> this up relatively soon. I, 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 oh, I, I, I guess our general feeling was we like the story. It's better than Octopath 1. And it, it almost made me want to go play Champions of the Continent. But I do want to talk about one other story element here, which comes up, which uh, is technically optional, technically post-game. We've talked about the side quests a little bit, so I feel like, but we want, I want to talk about one more, uh, which is the side quest that leads us to Galdera, uh, which I think is, opens, up, opens up some fascinating lore implications here. So those of you who, yeah, who don't remember or who haven't played Octopath 1, uh, at the end of Octopath 1, and we've talked kind of around this, um, the way the stories come together is that, like everybody, like they're trying, if I remember correctly, trying to summon uh, this beast that is Goldera, which is sort of like this god killer uh, entity. Um, and it turns out that that question mark island in the southeast of the uh, map in this game also houses uh, Goldera again. But it involves a couple of different side quests. You have to get like a book that was important in Cyrus's story. That you happen to find, like just in some dude's house who's going crazy <laughs> um, in this game and some others. Um, and it also involves the very first side quest in the game. No matter what, who you start with, the very first side quest you'll have an opportunity to encounter is this dude named Al, um, who you have to like go get his pack back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is that's that's the same exact concept when you play the first Octopath. Oh. No matter who you start with, you run into Kit. It's oh, your first side quest. Is me. I and totally Kit. forgot that. So it was. Yeah, they were keeping that sort of structure and theming. Like that's one so fun. One. Um, so yeah. it turns out that like Al is uh, more important than maybe we thought, um, and uh, he has this uh, this book that is involved with summoning Galdera. And in that southeast corner, you can go encounter Galdera again, who is significantly harder than uh they are in the first game which is saying something because they weren't a, they weren't a pushover in the first game um and then once you clear galdera you it turns out al is alfred hornberg who was the king of i don't remember the name you'll know this of uh all i think it's it's just hornberg. Horn, is, is the, the, the the okay so it's hornberg and ulbrich was uh served him and so it seems like maybe this game is a prequel to Octopath 1. Maybe it's like a side pool, because especially when you go to confront Goldera, all the uh, these sort of uh, platforms that you fought the boss rush from in, in Octopath 1 are destroyed. So it's like, is this after? But 
Alfred is young, so I don't really know how it makes sense in sort of this MCU world. Is it another continent on this world? Is it? We don't know. But can we talk about how hard Galdera is? <laughs> well, you know, having just played through uh, one again, I think they're equally hard. I think Galdera in Octopath 2 is a little more complicated. I think the first half uh, is a little more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, the the eye with the souls of the damned or whatever, um, it is perniciously challenging fight and you have to be smart about who you put in team one um so that team two you can there's certain characters that you can cheese your way through things and you kind of have to in my opinion save your your most cheesy of cheesing uh for the second half um which is usually a fortitude build where you keep one character at one hp and you have that one thing equipped that's like yeah you do inverse damage and then you just wreck everyone in the phase two fight was my mvp Um, in phase two yes mm -hmm. (laughs) same here yep Yep. and uh (laughs) and in and in the first game that's how i do my phase two to ulberic Wallmaster. uh ulberic warmaster and use the the final skill when a when a hill's battle cry where you do six attacks and each time you're doing like 50 or sixty thousand. um and you just you just clear the fight in two turns. One to clear all the other things that lets you then unlock doing damage on the center part, and then you just run it again and you're done. Um, so as long as you can pull that off in phase two with Galdera and Octopath two, you're fine. But that first phase is really long, really tricky. You get very narrow windows to deal dam- damage to the center, and it has all sorts of buffs so that it's like hard to do good damage um it it's just you just have to keep this constant barrage going and you have to heal up like non-stop it's to me i always felt like when i was fighting galdera in octopath 2 it was like phase one uh if i was going to get through it was going to take me 10 to 15 minutes and phase two if i was going to get through it was going to take me about two minutes like, yeah i mean he, if, you let, if you let that phase two get more than a, a turn or two you're toast so you just have right. to you can, re- you can recover. The time I won, I recovered. Uh, yeah. But I thought I was going to yeah. go down. Oh, yeah. The Hired time help I won fixed as well. it for me. So, yeah. <laughs> Hired help. Same. Oh, Jesus. I bought my way out of it in the end. Those foreign assassins, man. <laughs> nope. Just managed to get a clutch hit at the end. Everyone was dead oh, but nice. Hikari. And I was like, <laughs> and I'd accidentally healed Hikari as well. So he wasn't like, going to do as much damage. And I was just like... Well, he's if he brings someone else back to life, then they're just gonna die anyway, and so will Hikari. Right. So I'm just gonna go for the axe move on Warmaster or Armsmaster or Warmaster, and it just did enough damage. And I was I, like, it's like 11 p.m. at night, and I definitely screamed. And I was like, <laughs> I did it oh at 3 a.m. and my neighbor sleeps right next to my wall, so I'm sorry. Yeah. not really. <laughs> <laughs> no, you it was, did it. Yeah, every time I've beaten those super hard bosses it's late in the night because it's after multiple tries yeah pretty much but yeah the first half of that fight is definitely the harder fight um sometimes i would try and drag it out a little bit longer so it would like swap to the sp draining skill because like part of what i was doing was like throne a i needed throne at max hp at all times so that she did as much damage as possible with um her elfric skill like the um like divine skill on thief 
because then she would like multi-hit and also hit every target and do nine like max damage nine times out of ten um but ochette was probably my mvp for the first half because i had the frog king with the axe and goldera is weak to the axe and if you use her ex skill you can make the frog attack four times which means it hits eight times which means it pretty much breaks the shield immediately and it made my life a little bit easier um but yeah like i i did die on the second phase a few times but like i knew if i got to the second phase i was probably almost always very close to beating him whereas most of the times i died on the first phase it was yeah. probably like pretty early on or midway through yeah, and you know we haven't talked a lot about the combat in this game because um, we just you know haven't had time. Uh, but the uh, combat in this game so is phenomenal. Um, right, it's so good. And I, it is my Octopath One was once upon a time my favorite combat system in an RPG. Octopath Two just barely inches it out because of that extra flexibility you get with the latent powers, and it just uh -huh. gives you a couple more options, which I think make it a little more interesting. But Galdera is really where, um, to some degree, like I had to throw everything out because like I did Galdera maybe two days after the game released to the public. So I didn't have anywhere else to look, anywhere else to figure out. Right. You didn't you didn't have a guide. You uh, were yeah, the guide. I had to figure it out on my own. And so like it was it was such a satisfying feeling because I literally had to get a piece of paper out and like lay out how I was going to do things. And I didn't know how exactly how some accessories interacted so like i did the same thing with ikari mm -hmm. but i was like is that really gonna be good um like how how much is the damage gonna scale so i didn't know um but it gives you so many options and sure like i think on goldera to do it effectively like you have limited numbers of options and you have to realize how good aver's reckoning is and mm -hmm. It's so much better in the yeah. second game. <laughs> um, and you have to realize just how busted Akari can be with that axe skill on Arms Master or whatever that. Uh, apparently, you can get another skill that's maybe even better off of someone with a sword. Um, yes. But, like, it, it just. Outside of that fight, like, everything is fair and everything is challenging. And there's so much to do in the combat system. So, like, if you're listening to this and you've probably played the game at this point. Just know that we all like the combat. <laughs> yeah, a lot. It's really good, and we also really like the way it looks. Uh, I, at least for me, like, and you guys can correct me here because I think you both played it on Switch. Because um, we're talking about how this game just like improves on the first game. Uh, this game for me, um, maybe partially because I was playing on PS5 on like a really nice TV this time. Man, it looks so much better. Like when I threw on Octopath One, and I was like, everything looks so blurry. Um, <laughs> here, it's so sharp, and they do so much with the camera, and they do so many things to make this game look so incredible that it was almost like I can't believe how much I used to love the way that Octopath One looked. I still love the way the first one looked. It's just uh, you're right. There, they left a lot. Uh, you know, you can you can kind of pass over a lot with a lot of blur and smoke and other effect, um, so that things don't have to look good or polished or clear or crisp. Uh, and they do a lot less of that, um, especially in dungeons. I feel like dungeons just look better in in Octopath Two. Um, I can see things better too, which is really important when like mm. they're like, oh yeah, here's this kind of hard to see narrow side path to get that treasure chest over there. Like that kind of navigating can get a little frustrating in the first game. And I feel like 
if I miss something in the second game, that's on me because the visuals are just better. Yeah, and like they're definitely the worst on Switch, but it's still a significant step up. Um, like I hate talking about performance, but unfortunately, that's semi what my job is. But yeah, like Octopath runs noticeably worse on Switch than it does anywhere else. Uh, but it's still like better than the original, which is kind of nuts to me. Um. But yeah, like it, I think most of it, as you said, Pat, like the lighting is so much more like it, it does such a good job of like highlighting everything in the area. You can see where all the hidden chests are and things like that. Um, yeah, it's bonkers how much they've gotten their heads around and the dynamic camera, like camera, like you said, Zach, like that's something they probably learned from Triangle Strategy. Um, and it's just like, oh, yep. yeah, it's just like so well implemented, like little things like special attacks get special camera angles and the night of the scarlet moon when like the camera pans and the, the zooms out and you see the moon and you see the monster it's just like super impressive it's so much better it's kind of nuts yeah um i i i can't imagine anybody playing this game and thinking it it doesn't look incredible <laughs> um it, it's yeah. it, it's just so remarkable i know some people thought i know some people get annoyed by the constant desire for hd 2d um remakes and things like that but i don't get it <laughs> every time i've played a game in hd 2d and i think triangle strategy is probably the weakest on this front um just because it's a little bit drab looking as a game and it wasn't unique you know what i mean like uh, it was like oh it's like octopath but tr strategy um whereas like live alive looked so vibrant um and this game oh, yeah. looks vibrant and has the great camera and it's just so excellent. Um, it's so beautiful. Um, it's I, I think it gets back to that like idea of it's it's what the games of the late SNES era looked like in my head, and it makes it mm -hmm. feel like a playground. And it makes it feel like if you've loved the genre, you're gonna love the way this game looks. And um, it, it gives that storybook element, and I think it's just fantastic. And uh, speaking of fantastic, and there is no way that I'm gonna have a podcast that has Pat Gann <laughs> on it. And we're not going to talk about music, especially if it's Octopath, especially because I'm looking right now at my physical of Octopath Traveler 2 or Octopath Traveler 1 soundtrack I got courtesy of Pat. And um, yeah, um, the music, Nishiki. I really we don't know who's going to compose Dragon Quest 12, but can we all agree that we hope it's it's Nishiki? <laughs> it should be. Because uh, it would be Please. so excellent. But um, the music in Octopath 1 was amazing the music in octopath 2 is maybe even better because there's just more variation there's more variety and it's just fuller and it's so fantastic and i love octopath 2's music and i am so excited that uh we already have it um physically and it's great so what you guys think <laughs> well real quick i just want to note in in terms of having more music if you if you basically cut nighttime variants out of the soundtrack, you get a four disc soundtrack again. Um, so in terms of mm -hmm. how much music needed to be written okay. for this game, it was you know you have your character themes, you have town environment dungeon themes, you have a certain number of battle themes. Um, it was basically the same amount of core music to be written. But I want to speak to the value of the nighttime music because um, you know those those could have been throwaway variants. Those could have been phoned in arrangements if Nishiki wanted them to be. And he decided, nope, that's not what I want. Um, you get so much variation with these nighttime themes. They're often a slower tempo, though not guaranteed. They often have fewer instruments, not guaranteed. 
often softer, not guaranteed. Like there, um, sometimes there's new instruments in the night version that wasn't found in the day version or vice versa. Um, and the best thing about some of uh, just a handful of the nighttime ones is sometimes you'll get a little bit of what feels like uh, some improvisation in terms of like an instrument or a melody, like, um, What's like the big town? New Oh, New Delstro. Yes. Yeah. Go and pay attention to the difference between day and night on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's some stuff going on in night that just ain't there in day, which makes sense for that town. That nighttime jazz club feel. Right. Things come alive at night Mm -hmm. in this town. So things actually change in a whole different way for that town than they do in a lot of the other environments. I mean, this is smart. if you're going to do day-night variants for music, and there's plenty of games that do, you know, a lot of modern Western RPGs will do this sort of procedural generation approach to this. Um, not procedural generation, but, like, the way music is just sort of layered on or off. Yeah, it, um, it just feels like minor, there, minor key a, and layering differently a lot of the time, yeah. Yeah, and there's there's nothing wrong with that approach and i think for certain games that are so big like that's a good time saving measure for a composer and sound designer to consider that approach like um like i think about games like um like little big planet uh 2 and 3 did a really good job with layering um so i'm not saying that that's a bad thing to just be like well we're going to pool or add layers based on what's going on in a moment that's that that sort of sort of variable sound design is is great i'm not knocking it but this is a game where the sound design is is essentially fixed when you're listening to a piece of music this is as it's written this is you're going to hear it as you're hearing it uh in one form so if you're going to do day night we're not just going to pull away some elements we're going to do a whole different recording and um so that added effort to me uh played out in such a big way so earlier when i was saying oh it's the same length if you just cut the night music what i'm saying is i'm glad we're not cutting the night music because it's it's not it's not throwaway versions it is so crucial uh to bringing this world to greater life and just even out of context i've listened to the full six discs on loop maybe about i don't know 10 or 11 times now i'm struggling to write a review of the soundtrack in fact i suspect this podcast episode will be up before my review of the soundtrack is up because uh, it's just taken me this long but like good lord it is such a good <laughs> soundtrack and the nighttime music just cannot be overlooked and you know one of the best pieces of nighttime music is the main theme yeah the main theme gets a day night variant because the title screen can also appear at nighttime based on the natural cycles uh based on the system data because um, i think it's every 15 minutes if you're not manually switching so like the nighttime variant of the main theme is like super awesome in my opinion i prefer it to the day and of course for those who don't know the main theme is a carryover from the first game it is the first game's main theme but with with some new fun stuff added in including holy crap vocals can we talk about how good use of choral oh, like yeah. choir style vocals in it is in this game so good it i mean yasunori nishiki took so much like he came out of nowhere by the way i mean yeah I, I, we had never heard of him, and then suddenly he's on for Octopath 1, and we're like, who's this guy? And great music, super great music, and then it's like, can he really keep that up? Yes, as a matter of fact, he can, and in fact, he can step it up, um, which is what he did. And so the vocals 
have been really impressive for me uh, all throughout. Last thing I want to say, um, I think I mentioned this before we started recording, alongside doing a lot of studio work in Japan, and most of this, if not all of this, is studio recorded. I don't know if there's anything here that's actually synth. I, there probably is somewhere, but like for the most part, like they have like nearly 100 people credited for um, instrumental and vocal performance. Like, So this is a big, in terms of scale, it's a big soundtrack. But part of what they did was they uh, decided to record a handful of tracks uh, with a studio in the U.S., specifically Oceanway Studio in Nashville. And for people who are like sound buffs, Oceanway in Nashville is a pretty big deal. It's, it's not like as big as a deal as like Abbey Road in uh, the U.K., but it's pretty close. Like Oceanway is a really well-known, famous studio. A lot of really great work has come out of there, both for classical and for like you know, modern top 40 pop, like you want to book Ocean Way if you want it to sound good. Um, it's a great studio. So I read in the liner notes, they intentionally did main theme, the ending credits music, which is uh, sort of weaved together all the all the character main themes, and then um, all of the lands environment themes. So like Leaflands and, uh, help me out here, Crestlands, other lands. Brightlands, Winterlands, yeah. yeah. Those lands, both day and night version, those specifically recorded in uh, Nashville. And if you if you listen to it and if you've played it, you've probably noticed for yourself, Alana. Why don't you just mention the 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 tonal quality difference? Because I think it's very noticeable. Yeah. So like, even when I was playing, I noticed that like they sounded the area themes and the character themes sounded like. Like, almost like I was sitting there listening to it live. It sounded like it was a recording that I was watching happen in front of me. And I don't, I didn't know at the time I was playing the game that it was recorded in Nashville. I've got the soundtrack, so I've got the linear notes. Um, but I was like, this sounds like it was recorded somewhere different. And you can tell, like, the audio, not to, like, knock anything else, but you can tell that, like, there's this big production, big music, big orchestral style that they're using for these pieces of music. And... Yeah, I, I think I described it as like you can hear it almost like bounce off the walls, like echoing, like like a dome or recording chamber or something like that. So yeah, you can just completely tell the difference and it's nuts. It's so good. Um, I love all of the area themes. I think my favorite is probably maybe the Leaflands, I think, um, but they're all super, super good. Yeah, I think Leaflands is my favorite too. I will say, you know, we've talked so much about how pretty much everything in two is better than one. And I think overall the soundtrack to two is better than one. I don't think my favorite song from the first game is Frostlands. Mm. Oh, and yeah. I don't think there's, I don't think there's a single piece of music in two that at least in terms of environment themes that tops Frostlands. Like yeah. Frostlands is just one of the smartest pieces of piano driven music. And Nishiki does such a great job when he, when he puts piano front and center. Now, if we if we include like the grandiosity of battle themes and the way they did Ooh. battle themes in this game, you two tops one. I mean, like, the, there's the just second no battle question. theme. Oh my goodness! Can we like, yeah. yeah? Can we like talk about like if you go into a cave and accidentally run into like one of the bosses in those caves? How ridiculous that boss music is! Fierce confrontation. <laughs> I was yeah, like, wait, is this knocks you is over? This God, like, who am I fighting? <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, and then but then you get to like the Vida and Galdera oh. fights, and then they really Ooh. crank it up, and you're like, "Oh, I'm fighting God and the Devil combined." Yeah. I, it, it's such a good soundtrack. I don't even. 
I have no words. Uh, you guys have both said it better than I could. Um, it's fantastic. Well, if I could say just say of one, course, one, one course. more thing. Uh, character themes are great across mm-hmm. both games. Um, but just like the characters themselves, I think their musical themes are more distinct in the I second agree. game. They're more distinct yeah. and they're more varied. I mean, Particio's theme is just <laughs> like... So fun. It's unexpected. You get the saxophone solo. It's it's just absurd and great, and I love it. And then, and then again, Temenos' theme is just like never would have predicted that Nishiki like had the chops to make a song. It like seems that. like it could totally be in Moffat's Sherlock. <laughs> yes, oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. And like, but it doesn't feel like um, a parody or yeah, an homage. Yeah. It it does yeah. feel like its own song, and. So, but what's really crazy also about these themes is that they're utilized better than in the first game. You know, the first game, you get these character themes written, and then they tend to only get pulled in um, during cutscenes, like at the beginning or end of a chapter for that mm-hmm. character. And that's really all you get of them. But uh, each of the final Ooh, battles for goodness. each of the eight characters, uh, it's actually the same final battle piece of music. There's basically two motifs mm-hmm. running there's the actual sort of final battle motif that's its own melody that you get up front and then for the b section of the song it's that same sort of music and sort of the same instrumentation and that sort of thing but then the b section works in the character's theme character's motif and so there's actually those eight tracks exist um on the soundtrack and when you listen to them in a row you're like why am I hearing the same final battle? And then you get to the B section yep. and you're like, oh, right. It's it's that battle theme plus this character theme. And it's so good every time. Yeah. So good every time. And it makes you appreciate the value of those character themes all the more. And like, I can hear any one of them and tell you within, I don't know, three or four seconds, which character it is. Like, they're so distinct. Oh, they're so good. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because you, you, you say that. And like, when I played the game, I didn't notice that. I was just like, oh, it's the final boss theme. <laughs> and after no, yeah, after go, listening go to listen, it now, like, I'm like, oh, I see what you're doing, Nishiki. I see you. <laughs> I was looking out for it because they do something similar in one, but they're separate. Like they use the character theme to lead into the boss theme, mm, and then okay. it's just the it's just the battle for Journey's End. But um, yeah, in two, as Pat said, like they're an integral part of the music. Like it starts off with the and then it goes into the like character's theme, and then it goes into the music, and it does it again. It's like yeah, yeah, it's excellent. Um, yeah. So, uh, needless to say, y'all, those of you who are listening, we could talk about this game for a long time. And we've been talking about it for a while now. Uh, but uh, I think that's going to end the episode <laughs> uh, because we. Ending on yeah. music. Yeah. I'm all about I mean, it. When it's Octopath, that seems appropriate. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a fantastic game. And I think that you can tell that all of us uh, were a huge fan. And uh, thank you so much for listening. And thanks, both of you, for coming on two of my favorite podcast guests. So thank you also listeners for listening for this two over two hours of us waxing poetic about, um, in my opinion, one of the best RPGs of the last decade. And it's, it's really fantastic. So uh, let's, let's move on to housekeeping and what's coming up next and how to get in touch with us and other stuff like that. So coming soon. Um, and this is a change a little bit from what you've heard maybe in previous episodes. I've edited maybe the previous episode to try to cut some of this out to let you know what's coming up. Um, but, uh, I, I will say that one thing that hasn't changed is, uh, the next two episodes that you will hear will be game journals over Lost Odyssey. Uh, I am on those episodes and Peter is hosting them. 
Um, but those will come out over uh, two weeks from now. You'll hear part one, and the two weeks after that, you'll hear part two. Uh, but then uh, after that, uh, we have uh, we have a feature coming up, which uh, I actually think this will come on before this even uh, is released to the public. But uh, this is our 25th anniversary year for RPG Fan. Um, and we're going to be releasing a feature about uh, the staff's 25 favorite moments from RPGs um, or anything that falls under our coverage. So that, that means you're good, Pat, <laughs> uh, uh, over the last 25 years. Um, and that's going to be a feature you're going to see. And we're also going to have an episode that's been sort of in the works for many years uh, where we're talking about like sort of our favorite moments from RPGs. Um, and then after that, we're going to move into our next game journal, partially in honor of the Pixel Remasters releasing recently, uh, but also because Final Fantasy 16 is going to be coming out. And we're going to have our game journal episode over Final Fantasy 6. Um, and that's actually the second time we've had a, an episode exclusively over 6. And I believe, Alana, you were on the first one. Is that right? Oh, I will. Yeah. yeah. Um, Alana will not be part of this one, but um, we'll have um, some new voices talking about Final Fantasy VI. And that's what we know coming up. Um, and that's going to take us through mid-July um, at this point. And after that, we're not sure. It depends on Solosi's schedule and where we are. But I will let you know as soon as I know. Um, so if you want to give us feedback, we love feedback. There are a lot of ways to do it. You can email us, uh, retro at rpgfan.com. Um, you can also comment on our Facebook page, check out our Discord, our YouTube, our Twitch. Um, however you enjoy interacting with us, you can let us know there. You can also review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. You know, we love feedback, especially the five-star the five variety. We also have two other fine podcasts, uh, Random Encounter, every two weeks about random things, mostly about current games and things that are coming up, and also Rhythm Encounter, uh, which is hosts the other two weeks. Um, about RPG music and all things RPG music. You can hear Pat on that. If you go back, you can hear Alana and I on that as well, quite a bit. Um, but let's talk about where we can reach uh, the individual panelists as well. So Pat, how is it easiest to reach you? If you want to email me, it's just pgan, uh, P-G-A-N-N, at rpgfan.com. Uh, I am pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at gameodactyl. That's uh, the word game, the letter O, and dactyl. I love that. And Alana, how is it easiest to reach you? Um, I guess at this point, it's I do have a Twitter. I don't use it anymore, though. Um, <laughs> so I guess go read my work on Nintendo Life. You can go click on my profile and see everything I've written in the last like year, I guess. And there'll be lots of RPG stuff, especially because we're recording this the week that the Xenoblade DLC comes out. Woo! So I'm definitely going to be writing mm. about Xenoblade stuff for the next couple of weeks, so yeah. yeah. Go check out Alana's work on Nintendo Life. It's excellent. Um, and if you want to get in touch with me, social media is not the way. <laughs> um, you can email me, uh, ZachW at RPGFan.com um, and I'm also, you know, at least on RPG Fans Discord, even if I don't check it, but if you DM me there, I'll see it. So it's just Zach W um, on RPG Fans Discord. So again, thank both of you so much for coming on to talk about this game. Um, it sounds like you guys liked it just as much, if not more than me. Um, so it was a great time, and it was a, it was a joy to chat with both of you. So thank you, listeners. Good night and good luck. Mm-hmm.